0: Hello and welcome back to How To with the Communications Clinic. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how to talk about illness. Whether you're a medical professional, a patient, or if you've a loved one or friend that's been diagnosed with an illness, understanding the importance of clear communication in relation to illness is key. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Fergus Shanahan. Fergus is a clinician scientist with over 40 years experience helping patients. He is also an emeritus professor of medicine at University College Cork and he has recently published the fascinating book, The Language of Illness, which outlines the need for clearer language by everybody involved with or affected by illness. Fergus, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: I'm happy to be here, Louise.
0: Your book, Fergus, The Language of Illness, is a book that you said you would like to have read at the start of your career. What difference do you think it might have made to your career?
1: I think if I had read this book at the outset of my career, I would have come to an appreciation earlier about the importance of illness as opposed to disease. Disease is what I as a medical student and later as a medical scientist Uh, learned about what was wrong with patients, uh, the objective evidence of what's wrong. But illness is the lived experience of disease. It's what the patient experiences. And that requires a different language, is expressed in different ways. And I think I probably would have been a better doctor had I come to the realization of that at an earlier stage. I also think that illness is far more complex and infinitely more interesting than the simple disease.
0: So what did you set out to teach people then about the language of illness?
1: Well, the book is, is not so much a, a vedamecham for uh, teaching people how to speak to patients or, or to communicate, because I think much of that falls into the realm of common sense and kindness What the book tries to do is get people to think about the language they're using because patients frequently say, even with a very skilled doctor, they frequently say he or she was speaking a language that's quite distinct from mine. I seem to be speaking a different language, even very erudite, very well educated, very well informed patients. And one sees this in illness memoirs by famous people, uh, well-known authors Uh, point out that they had great difficulty communicating with their doctor. So much of the point I'm trying to make here is that much of the disease speak, the language that doctors have been trained to use, is unnecessary. Much of it is actually a legacy from the 19th century. And when I looked deeper into this, I found that medical students, on average, learn about 10,000 new words in the first year of their training. That may rise to 50,000 by the time they're finished. Now, if someone studies a continental language, Spanish, English, German, whatever it may be, a first-class honours student would be lucky to have five to 6,000 words in their new vocabulary. So for the medical student, this is multiple uh, layers of language they have to learn while they should actually be engaging with patients in the language that patients use. And I realised... In speaking with patients that while a certain amount of technical language, of course, is necessary, we saw this, this with the COVID pandemic, but people learn the technical necessities very quickly. And I would argue that much, much of the technical jargon in medicine is quite unnecessary
0: and so many people listening who who have been in hospital have had per, perhaps a different experience of telling a medic about their symptoms or pain and overhearing them translating that into medical speak so so absolutely a distance must be formed then when when you when it's an entirely different conversation although the the facts are the same so so the the, the value in quoting the patient directly obviously can't be underestimated
1: Absolutely, Eloise. It's not just a a question of distancing effect and using the wrong language and creating that distance. It actually can be bad medicine. So, for example, what you just said there, translating the patient's words, uh, there's a word called dysphagia in in medicine, which means difficulty swallowing. Now, that's always a very serious symptom. It's uh, it's really a medical emergency if it is truly dysphagia. But no patient ever comes into hospital and says, doctor, I have dysphagia. Why would they say that? So I have seen numerous chart entries uh, and numerous students and junior doctors and indeed senior doctors say to me and refer me a patient as saying this patient has dysphagia. So I would repeat the history and take from the patient and find no such thing. The patient does not have dysphagia. The patient might have something else. It might be a sense of indigestion. It might be somewhat discomfort, but it wasn't a a difficulty swallowing. They might just feel a sense of fullness. But because it was translated by the first medic into a a, a meaningless word, dysphagia, that patient was referred for an invasive procedure, namely a gastroscopy, where we put down a, a, a tube and look inside the patient's stomach. In fact, clear history taking and not translating those words into medical speak could have avoided it completely.
0: Can you give me an example of the time when you learned most from saying nothing?
1: Oh, well, saying nothing silences, you know, they say that uh, music is actually to really appreciate music. It's actually what's happening between the notes. So, too, is the the case in conversation. Uh, I had one particular memorable individual come to see me and he clearly didn't want to be there and was only coming to see me as quote the last hope but he had no hope in, in in anything i could reveal and he'd had what he called a million dollar workup and he was getting these episodes of um inflammation of his liver but insisted that if i was going to be any use i'd have to do it without any more tests so um i remained silent and i asked him the odd question about his retirement and how he occupied his time and uh, he told me he liked to go, um, his only passion was the shooting season. Now, I'm a city slicker and I knew nothing about the shooting season. So I asked him one question about his guns and he proceeded to tell me about his guns and every nuance about the uh, the, the, sh- the guns he had and how he cleaned them. And in the course of the conversation, while I remained silent, he filled it because he felt he had to be there. His wife was outside waiting. She'd insisted he come to see me. So he filled the time. And eventually he disclosed that he used to clean the guns with something called carbon tetrachloride and therein was the diagnosis to all his problems. None of the other doctors had picked up on it, not because they were silly, probably far more accomplished and more with greater expertise than I had, but I just listened and allowed him to fill the silence rather than me fill the silence.
0: And what happened?
1: we realized that he was inhaling the carbon tetrachloride that's what was causing his liver inflammation these episodes and once we stopped that he never had a problem ever again
0: wow tell me about empathy then because it is overused and perhaps abused and you know sometimes unrealistic because you know i feel your pain is completely untrue you don't so how does empathy come into play with the interaction between a doctor and a patient how can you be empathetic
1: Well, empathy is huge news at the moment, and um, I'm a huge fan of Alan Alda, and I I know you interviewed him for one of these series. I have difficulty with the word in this sense. First of all, it's unnecessary. It's a word that needs explanation frequently, and therefore it's less useful, and it tends to be used where a simpler word like kindness and compassion would would suffice. It's also a word that's relatively new in the context of healthcare and nursing. It's not a word that was used uh, by some of the famous names like Florence Nightingale or William Osler or Francis Peabody, famous people from over a century ago that were deeply engaged with the management of patient uh, patients and uh, their sincerity has been evident in their writing. So they didn't use the word. They didn't need the word. They used other words like kindness, as I said instead. And I think the word has been debased in popular parlance, but uh, so it's an unnecessary word. It's also unrealistic because, and, and can actually even be occasionally offensive to say to a patient, I know what you're going through. I feel your pain because it should prompt the response. No, you don't feel my pain. No, you couldn't possibly know what I'm going through unless you 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 had it yourself now doctors and nurses and all of us do come close perhaps occasionally to having what the word empathy means if we've had the same or similar illness ourselves but the same disease in two individuals is never experienced the same way you know a a major catastrophe healthcare catastrophe for me might not be experienced by you in the same way even if they're very similar And this can lead in some cases for people to dismiss a patient and and say, well, that's a trivial thing. I had that myself and it was no problem. Or on other occasions, insult the patient by saying, you know, I feel your pain. No, you don't. Take, for example, a man caring for a woman in labor. A male doctor or male nurse can quite adequately care and has done for centuries to care for a woman in labor. But not because they've empathy, because they've kindness and compassion and knowledge and skills and competency. So we don't need to drag this new word in.
0: Let's talk about a loved one or a friend or a relative of the sick, the lay person who is visiting somebody who's sick. How should they act?
1: The book is an attempt to mine patient words. Um, I should explain that there have been hundreds, thousands of illness memoirs that have value here, particularly on this question you've just addressed. And what's remarkably consistent in all of these is that the person who's ill doesn't need the visitor to say very much. They just need honest presence and your time. And what comes out of these illness memoirs is actually, first of all, that we will all play a role in an illness story, because illness is universal. Uh, We will all either play a role in our own illness story or the illness story of uh, our spouse or some loved one or a friend, so it's going to happen, and we should and and the thing that that people often comment in these illness memoirs is, uh, memoirs is the awkwardness that they find. So, for example, it's quite common when someone is given news of a serious illness, whether it be a cancer or some progressive serious illness, it's quite common for them to first conceal it. Now, there could be lots of reasons why they conceal it. But one of the consistent reasons is because they anticipate this awkwardness that a friend will will have and display. And I myself uh, experience it can be the family can experience an awkwardness uh, when there's a seriously ill patient uh, person in the family and friends will occasionally stay away. They're not being poor. They're not being hard hearted. They just feel so awkward that they don't know what to say. And when, in fact, in actual fact, the honest thing to say is I don't know what to say because the ill usually don't expect very much. But what they don't want is that you might ignore them. I I give a list at the end in my epilogue on a few tips on how to behave with the ill. But I was particularly struck by a memoir of a doctor, actually, a senior doctor in North America, wrote about um, his experience when he was given a serious diagnosis, which we'd now call motor neuron disease. This is a progressive disorder of muscular function. And he was in the prime of his life and very popular. And this was a major medical uh, institution in North America. And he found that previously close colleagues started to avoid him, find reasons not to come near him. And so did his family. And one day, and this was written 40 years ago, but it says chilling now, as, I, as it was when I first read it 40 years ago, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, but he describes one day when he fell in the corridor. Now, even though he did a serious diagnosis, he was still able to function quite well, and right up until the end, but he fell in the corridor, and one of his friends, a previously close friend, their eye contact was made, but the friend pretended he didn't see him, averted the eye gaze, and rushed off in a different direction. I find that profoundly chilling so I point out in the book you don't have to be medically knowledgeable you don't have to know anything about the illness you just have to not ignore the patient show that you care and be there the most important thing anyone could do is be there you don't have to say very much and in actual fact all these illness, illness memoirs show that you should never minimize the illness don't be a minimizer in the sense of saying well sure you know you only had one leg amputated, you know, at least you didn't have to have two legs amputated or something silly like that. They don't need you to minimize their illness. They know how serious it is. So don't try to diminish it. Don't be a philosopher. Don't say, well, sure, the Lord works in mysterious ways, or maybe this happened for a reason, or maybe something else will happen that will be good. Don't try any fake philosophy. They don't need it. And lastly, don't be a storyteller. The ill do not need to hear about Mrs. Murphy down the road who had a similar illness. They don't need a deluge of stories that you might have that might try and eclipse their story. They only want to talk about their own story. So don't be a minimizer. Don't be a philosopher. Don't be a storyteller. But most of the the things I would say are positive. Just be there. Honest presence is all they need. And so the language of illness, the language they need, is actually a very simple language.
0: And, uh, you know, that, that story you told of um, the doctor 40 years ago, uh, in your experience, have you seen loved ones and lay people visiting um, patients? Have you seen us improve?
1: I'd like to say yes. Uh, but I would say that if you look at doctors and nurses and you would say, well, they're in a caring profession, and, and, and I mean really skilled ones now and, and people who are well able to communicate, Even they will say they feel awkward and they often have an epiphany when they write about their own illness. They actually come to realize that they had been misbehaving or miscommunicating all these years, that they had been awkward in themselves because they experienced it amongst others. So, you know, it's not about knowledge. It's not about experience. I think we all need a more conscious awareness and it isn't easy. You know, no one would say it's easy. Uh, But I think we have to get over that awkwardness ourselves. So I'd love to say we've all improved. uh, But I think uh, not until one experiences that kind of cold awkwardness uh, does one really realize how chilling it is before they can actually improve.
0: You have a list of dubious disorders in your book, one of them being social anxiety disorder. Why is that considered dubious?
1: Well, I mean, down the ages... um, As I said, medicine has really only been effective in a specific way for serious illness in the last 60 to 70 years. Prior to that, it largely traded on performance of the doctor or nurse, uh, traded on the basis of uh, the placebo effect in large part. And uh, medicine is an area where the vulnerable can be exploited. It always has been the case and it still can be the case. And words can do this. There have been famous adverts. The public have been exploited um, down the ages. But when I was a youngster, I remember a TV advert that uh, talked about um, an an awful substance called Horlicks. And some of your older listeners may remember it. It's still around. It's dreadful stuff. It's kind of a a medical uh, milk-based meal, if if you will. And this was marketed to prevent night starvation and suddenly this thing called night starvation which of course doesn't exist uh, but everyone thought my god god forbid someone is suffering in silence and my grandmother or myself might be suffering in silence with this night starvation i never knew it existed i better take some of this this horlicks horlicks now of course eventually advertising agencies intervened and it's no longer possible to advertise something like that but it was very clever use of language In a way that was not intended for our welfare, it effectively exploited the public uh, with a a term that didn't exist.
0: I have to ask then, because other people will certainly want to know, what other made up diseases are there?
1: Well, probably the most famous or the most troubling one uh, was, again, older older listeners might remember it. But it was uh, in the earlier part of the last century and right up and even into the 50s and 60s, um, there was a thing called... Uh, thymic asthma doctors thought this was a reason why um, sudden deaths might happen in youngsters they had been looking at chest x-rays in children and they saw something that was actually a normal finding um, but it was a slightly enlarged or normal thymus gland the thymus gland is in the upper part of the chest and uh, one can just about see it in young patients and it tends to uh, shrink in older people um, but this was thought to be some serious disease and given this fancy name, and doctors were actually required and expected to submit the patient for irradiation of the thymus gland. And then the, the problem with that, once that label was applied, they had the radiation, but the radiation led to cancer of the thyroid and other cancers 10, 20, 30 years later. So it's recent up into the 60s and 70s, people, doctors were seeing patients present with these cancers due to the radiation they'd been given for a misdiagnosis uh, 30 years earlier. And this was all, all because, not because doctors didn't know about a disease. This was a problem about not being able to recognize normal. So normal has been, you know, normal is another word that people have difficulty with. Normal is not the same as healthy. And likewise, healthy can't be the same as absence of disease because the majority of people are harboring some form of risk factor for the later development of disease they're just not yet ill and furthermore normal can't be the average or the typical because the average or the typical well most of us are overweight or obese in modern society and one wouldn't couldn't call that as being normal even though it might be average or typical and lastly you couldn't say normal is the ideal or the desirable because Ideal or desirable bodies, well, that's a moving target and that varies in different cultures and it only applies to a minority of people anyway. So the use of the word normal is uh, fraught and it needs careful consideration. I personally think we're all a little bit normal and all a little bit abnormal and it's just part of the human condition. But most of the problems I've seen are actually misuse of language applied to something that's normal.
0: Can we speak about another term then which stood out to me in your book, uh, one which you used in reference to cancer, and it's that of the the triumph narrative. Tell me a bit more about yeah. that.
1: Um, so I said earlier that there is quite an accepted um literary genre now, um, which is called the illness memoir and And I applaud this and I welcome this uh, because it's giving patients a voice. And one could think of many different illness memoirs that have been published in Ireland, even in the past year. And uh, when I went to explore these illness memoirs, my reason for doing it was that I was conscious that all my career I had been using in large part and writing about diseases, but not much about the illness. So I'd not been using words that are important to patients like suffering, anger, Uh, Those kinds of words. And doctors generally don't use enough of those words. So that's what led me to the illness memoirs. And I found that they fell into a few different categories. Um, And they weren't always well-written, well-accepted, but not necessarily well-written. And the best of them tends to be written by people who are already good writers. In fact, the best of them are probably even in the world of fiction. So some of the great storytellers have provided more insight into illness than some of the people who actually experienced the illness them, themselves but in terms of the the categories of illness memoir one category was the triumphalist uh, or triumph memoir where it was discussing about how i beat cancer or you know if, if i can beat it you can beat it the lance armstrong kind of approach to cancer if i could do it you can do it and portraying it as if you know it's ma- man and womankind. um a triumph in the face of adversity. Many illnesses are about loss and catastrophe, and it doesn't mean that the patient who doesn't have this triumph is, a, a, in some way, a loser. And I think those kinds of illness memoirs, while they're not not useless by any means, um, they are not helpful for 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 many patients simply because of illness isn't a, a, a triumphalist experience. And the, on the other end of the, the scale, you have the catastrophic memoir, which is all about loss and foreboding and doom, which doesn't necessarily meet the needs of all of us. Uh, But I particularly dislike the triumphalist memoir simply because it kind of invokes this notion that we should um, all have a positive mental attitude. And I think that's a real tyranny. I would never tell a patient to have a positive mental attitude. And yes, it's something that's frequently said, uh, loosely and unwitting, and not in an unkind way, but in an unthinking way, uh, because being told to have a positive mental attitude when you're suffering with stage four breast or lung cancer is not really what you need to hear when you feel you're losing your your, your so-called battle. That's another dreadful mem- uh, metaphor that's offensive to many patients. But but lastly, the third category is a memoir which is cha- is chaotic because. Illnesses don't necessarily for, follow a narrative; they 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 kind of parallel stories and chaotic stories. Uh, patients have relapses and remissions. Uh, sometimes at the same time, they don't know whether they're coming or going. It's just their life becomes chaos, and they wouldn't describe it as a as a a, a narrative with a beginning, middle, and end. So that's why I decided to take the words out from all of these memoirs and just analyze the words rather than stitch them, stitch them into a story, because the words themselves tell a story. Uh, but I think that triumphalist um, memoir, its biggest problem is this idea of trying to invoke the notion that if you behave like me, and if you have a positive attitude, you too can beat this, when in actual fact, that's far from the truth for many, many unfortunate patients.
0: And similarly, those warlike metaphors, I can only imagine that they would make a, a terrible, difficult situation even more daunting to think that you have to now battle it.
1: Well, I think Christopher Hitchens, who wrote uh, in Vanity Fair, a series of articles about the cancer he had. And he was a great polemicist, a great writer, a great conversationalist, great journalist. And conversation was really important to him. And he developed a cancer of the esophagus that eroded then into his voice box and he was denied speech at the end which was the ultimate cruelty what he said at best uh, he said that you know i wasn't fighting a battle with my cancer my cancer was battling me i wasn't you know in a in a battle and he hated that met- metaphor and many many patients have have, have said the same uh, including irish patients um, that have been you know um, in the media in recent times, including patients all over the world, they've said this, but there was one particular author who wrote a book called um, Because Cowards Get Cancer Also. And he actually pleaded, he he was writing in the last year of his life and he pleaded with anyone who might write about him later on to please not say that he lost his battle uh, after a long illness with cancer. And of course, what appeared in the first obituary I read after I finished his book Uh, published in in one of the major um, newspapers, he lost his battle with cancer after a long illness. You know, it is an offensive metaphor um, to use. Uh, It shouldn't be used. And patients, for, for one reason only, patients dislike the metaphor. And I think we should give them the respect of not using it.
0: Well, certainly, in that case, absolutely, and that's john diamond and and Correct. that book uh, great read as well um so this effective communication and dialogue that that you speak about requires practice, and you know it it's it's one that impedes many professions, as you alluded to outside um the medical profession. so if you had one key piece of advice of how we should practice to become more effective in our communication, what would that be?
1: I would say, don't ignore the ill, give them their time, be there and listen to them and find that you, you it's far easier than you think get over your awkwardness and be there
0: thank you so much Fergus thank you and thanks to you for listening we'll be back with another episode very soon